This morning we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. And the big idea for that morning as well as for this morning is our ongoing love for one another is proof that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's the statement of verse 12. And then we have that statement uh, described and analyzed in two different sections, 3 through 15 and then 16 through 21. So that statement broken down in two. We answered the first one at the beginning, but we're going to start by just remembering some of the things that we're dealing with here. At the heart of everything that's going on in is, is how do we know that we have an unshakable, unassailable, unfailing assurance that we are truly saved? I, I mean, none of us have seen God face to face, right? If we have, we're in heaven right now and you're not sitting in the pew before us. None of us have seen God face to face and yet here we are, each one of us have hopefully made a commitment to live for Christ, to be a disciple. So that means living in a manner that we believe that the Bible teaches glorifies God, in a manner that is radically counter our culture. Now, beyond even having an assurance that we're saved here and now, how can we be assured that in one month, in one year, that when I'm struggling with depression, when you lose your job, when your marriage is falling apart, when your kids are rebelling, when you're, you have serious physical illnesses, when you're at the point of death, how can you be assured that you have that relationship with God that is secure, unassailable? Again, you've never met God. But we've made this radical decision, this life-altering decision to follow after Christ. So how can we continue to be sure that we have that right relationship in God? The right relationship, as, as we saw last week, we, we talk about it as a spiritual oneness with God. It's being in Christ. And very specifically in these verses, it's spoken of as God dwelling with us or us dwelling with God. It's, it's a mutual indwelling. But as in a, even as I was making notes early this morning, it, it struck me, this is not simply a, a restoration of a broken relationship with God, because Adam and Eve never had the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is a, a renewed relationship that is incrementally much more intimate than even they had, even though they walked with God. So there's an understanding of, of a relationship of being in Christ, a spiritual oneness. The Apostle John says the answer is simple, and yet it's going to have some profound consequences for us this morning. And at times you may have to pinch yourself just to make sure that you're thinking because there's some deep waters here. I get really stressed out when I'm doing scriptures that are deep in philosophical understanding and bringing all of these things together. So I've tried to be as simple as I can, not for your sakes, but for mine. <laughs> because if it doesn't make sense to me, it's not going to make sense to anyone else. So the assurance that we have this enduring, unshakable, unassailable relationship, our fellowship with God, it is revealed in our love for one another. That's the basic premise of everything we looked at two weeks ago. The way we look after our 
physical and emotional or spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in this room this morning, in practical ways, in sacrificial ways. It, it, it builds each other up and it brings glory to God. Now, I don't know if you've ever really taken the time to think a little more deeply about what that means. As we serve one another, whether it's simply supporting people to go on a short-term mission to Asia Minor, helping a student find a place to live, or simply speaking loving words to someone who you know is going through what they... The, the ancients used to call the dark night of the soul, when you just are unsure of your salvation and, and tenuous in terms of, of your walk with God. What is the proof? Loving one another. That, that's, that's the outward proof of a relationship with God. What we would call today the forensic evidence. There's internal evidences that we're going to look at very briefly. We talked about last week. But that's the outward, external, forensic evidence. When you come into a body of believers, you can gauge their relationship with God by the way they lovingly look after, support, and care for each other. It's, it's the proof because we know that we can only love God or we can only love one another as our sinfulness has finally been dealt with. If we've been given a new heart, a new desire to love, a new ability to choose a manner to love someone beside us who we may not have anything to do with except be here on a Sunday morning, we may not even necessarily get along with them well because their, their nature of their character is different, their background is different. But the reality is as we come and we serve one another in, in these very practical, visible, sacrificing ways, we can choose to do it because our sin has already been dealt with. That's the only way it can be done. We are to love in practical, selfless ways, despite the differences in our temperaments, in our character, despite the differences in our ethnicity, in our language, in our color, despite the hurt that someone may have caused to you or your family? What makes someone worthy of our love is Christ and nothing else. And here's the thing. We're not just to act like Christ. We're not just to love like Christ did. We're to actually love in Christ's place. The reality is that he is not here on this earth, is he? He's waiting for us in heaven. And until each and every one of us is gathered together with him, we are empowered here and now by this transformational power of the gospel, the love of God which we are now in, we abide in. And out of that, we love one another. In that loving one another, there is real spiritual change because it's not us. Is God in and through us. And so we become a means of revealing the glory of God and a means to the sanctification of the spiritual growth of others around us. So in us loving one another, in a manner like Christ, in Christ's place, there is real substantial formative uh, uh, development going on in one another. 
And that's the difference between our love as Christians and anyone else in this world, no matter what their background or denomination, uh, they could be Buddhist or Muslim, because you can have very loving Muslim families, right? Very humble and very caring uh, Buddhists. Well, what's the difference between our love and theirs? Well, our love comes from God. It's, trans- it's a transformational love that comes through the gospel being applied to us. And as we live it out one with another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it reveals the origin of that love, which is God, but it also reveals that he is the source of our love because it's definitely not in me to do this. So it shines the glory on God and not us. So our love comes from a life that has been transformed by the gospel. And as we live it out with our brothers and sisters, it brings the glory back to God. So in verses 13 through 16, we saw last week that first part of this is answered. What are the evidences of God's abiding in the believer? Do you remember what they were? First and foremost, we have been given the Holy Spirit. God has given each and every one of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is the teacher of truth. Not not just simply in an objective way that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is a historical person who walked this earth, but in an experiential way. Jesus not only died for sinners, He died for my sin. He is my hope of salvation. Now, at times, this work of the Spirit may give us a subjective feeling or a sensation or a a connection with a closeness with God. But that's not what John's driving at. We saw that again last week or two weeks ago. The assurance is the Holy Spirit himself. It's not the feeling of the Spirit. It is the assurance that Christ is in you. And there's a big difference there. So the issue is not experiencing the Spirit in some mystical way, but rather it's an issue of faith, of knowing and believing that the Holy Spirit lives in you and that His task is to reveal truth and to apply it to your life that you change to be more Christ-like. The second evidence that we saw in verse 15 is confessing. It says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And and so we need to remember that by simply calling on Christ and receiving Him as our Lord and Savior, that's the foundation of our faith. Now, I was meeting with somebody the other day, and I I know that maybe not everyone would agree to this, but I, I continue to move people to the understanding you don't simply slide into the kingdom of God. You need to be continually discerning when was that moment of change in my life? It may not be evident. You may have been blessed to grow up in the church, and and so it was more of a sliding across. But I always encourage people to continue to dig. What are the things that brought you to that precipice? And what was that act of faith? When did you reach out to Christ? And John says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, 
abides in God. Now, you may ask, well, what's the evidence there? <laughs> well, it's the argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And Paul says there the same thing. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not simply saying, you know, walking up to somebody on the street and giving them a, a little card and say, read this, and it says Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, you're saved. That's not what we're talking about. It's not a magical phrase. When it says confess, it actually means to recognize that Jesus died for your sin, right? It's saying that I have repented of my sin and I have received him as my Lord and Savior. So the truth is that the depth of our sin is such that in our natural fallen condition, we're unable to recognize the sovereignty of God in our life. Here's the creator of heaven and earth, the one who has formed man out of the dust of the earth. We are created in his image, and we don't even recognize his sovereignty over our lives. So not only are we unable to recognize we're unable to grasp our need of a Savior. We don't understand sin. And beyond that, we're unwilling to submit to the righteousness of a God. When we do hear that there is a God, a holy, pure, uh, unadulterated, perfect, loving God, we are unwilling to submit our life to that because it means I have to give up the things that my heart desires. So we're not just willing to not submit to the righteous demands of God, but you know what? We're actually also utterly incapable of looking upon Christ in a favorable way. Unless the Holy Spirit first works in us. That's the depth of the depravity of sin in our life before we come to Christ. And that's why it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is Son of God, meaning, again, if you recognize that sin and you say, I, before a holy God, am deserving of nothing but God's wrath, His indignation and that judgment, and yet I, I, I fall on my knees and I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, yes, then by that profession, that confession of faith, you are saved. And that's the kind of declaration that we're talking about here. Giving over of our lives to Christ. That already demonstrates that you are a child of God. That you are in God and God is in you. The third evidence in verse 16 is that, uh, that God abides in a believer is that uh, we are convinced of God's love for us. This is where we left off basically last week. It's this conviction. It's, again, it's not a subjective feeling. It's, oh, I know God loves me. I can sing a worship song and my heart soars to the heavens. Don't be fooled by emotions. They can go up and down depending on the circumstances around us, depending on, on, on my state, my nature, uh, uh, how I'm feeling that day. John says very specifically in regards to knowing the love of God, he says, we have come to know. It's a conviction and understanding. Again, there may be times when God gives us a sense of a feeling of his love, a closeness of that, comforting us when we are in a serious trial in our life. 
But the emphasis here is on the objective truth, on knowing and being sure of that objective truth, that no matter what the circumstances, no matter how far God feels away from me, He actually loves me. So the, the emphasis, again, is on, on believing without reservation. And this is probably the place where I've seen more Christians fall. They will say, well... <laughs> I don't feel God's love. How can he love me? <laughs> I don't love myself. But the problem is when they say that, they're, they're looking at their lives subjectively and they're saying, I am, I, if I was in God's place, I would be judging myself according to my own righteousness, according to who I am. And you may not be a very perfect person, but we stand on the blood of Christ. That is how we are declared righteous. So it has nothing to do necessarily with my sense of unworthiness, although that is true. It has everything to do with the worthiness of Christ. And I don't know how many people I know, I've met over the years, who live lives unsure of God's love for them. And I don't know how. It's a challenge. It's the message of Romans 8, isn't it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here it is, for I am sure, I am convinced, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor the height or the depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am convinced. I am persuaded. So what is the internal evidence, again, that, that has brought us to the point that, that God abides in us? Conviction. Conviction that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Conviction that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Conviction is God loves us. And then what is the forensic or outward or external evidence of that? Love for one another. As the love of God is worked out and massaged in the body of believers around us. So that's just a, a basic summary of where we're going, but it leads into everything today. So let's go back to verse 12 and just ask that question, the second part now. How is God's love perfected in us? What does it mean that God's love is perfected in us? And what does that have to do with the idea of loving one another? Well, first we need to see that word perfected here and understand that it has a very specific meaning. Three times in these verses, the first two times, 12 and 17, it's something that has already happened to us. And it's something that's been done to us. Does that make sense? We would call it a perfect passive. I don't know if there's English majors here, but it's something that's already happened, and it's something that's been done to us. Now, verse 18, where it happens again, it, it, there is an ongoing aspect of it. This love has not yet been perfected. And we'll get to that in a minute. 
Here's the truth that we, we need to try to digest and, and get our brain around this morning. Is God's love first is said to be perfected in us in that it has accomplished the purpose for which it, for which it has been lavished upon us. It, it has brought us to salvation, right? It, it has restored a, a right relationship with God. And it is the basis of our mutual dwelling with God, our abiding with God, He and us and, and us and Him. But that love has another grander purpose in God's plan for our life. If there wasn't, why wouldn't He just take us away right now? We're saved. Well, let's go be with the Lord. Well, there is a purpose for God's love being perfected in us that now comes to the fore. God's love is perfected in us as we love one another because as we do it, it builds up each other. There is a sanctifying process. There is a means of grace going on here that we love. And doing that, it builds faith. Now you have to ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be building faith? What exactly is it building? And again, what does that have to do with loving one another? Well, verse 17 gives us a very specific purpose statement. It says, God's love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. The Bible tells us, doesn't it? One day Jesus Christ is going to return. And there's going to be a horrendous day of judgment where all sin and all evil will be brought under the scrutinizing eye of God. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we repent of our sin, we cling to Christ as our Lord and Savior, believing that He died in our place. And with that understanding that He's died in our place, we know that there is now no condemnation for us, right? There is now no judgment for us because He took it. So we are released from that penalty of spiritual death. Now here's the question. Are we ever fully, truly released from that fear of judgment? We should be. <laughs> Why should we ever have to worry about the judgment of God that is yet to come when we know we are assured of our final destiny? We should never have a fear in, in any punishment coming yet. And, and John says perfect love casts out fear. The simple truth is that that love has not yet been perfected in our abiding in God's love. Now, John Calvin said it this way, basically. Fearing judgment can still rise up in us. It, it can still assault our minds. We can still become fearful, especially when we choose to sin. But fear is cast out in that it no longer disturbs or disrupts the peace I have that I know is mine in Jesus Christ. So there should be a rock-solid assurance in that final judgment, even though if, if he came back today, I, I might quiver for a moment knowing that I would be under the gaze of a holy God. But that final fear must be removed. It is removed. It is made complete. 
But when God is properly known, okay, so let me just back up. Uh, when someone fears God's judgment, it's because of unbelief. Let me say that again. If you have fear this morning of a judgment of God, whether it's today or whether it's, you know, when you die in 10 years, will he be faithful? It's because your faith is imperfect. When God's love is properly known and and we abide in it, it calms our mind. It restores peace to us and tranquility meaning that we now have a confidence that we stand before God, not because of who we are, but because of Christ. It's His blood. He died in our place. Does that make sense? We should never be a people who are afraid or fearful of the final judgment. And if we are struggling with that fear... It's because we have a problem. Our faith is not perfect. Our faith is improperly set. So how can we be sure of all this? What is to be the confidence? Is there anything given to us in these verses that said, yes, you can stand before a holy God because God's love is perfected in you? Well, look at the end of verse 17. There's the foundation and the basis of our confidence. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, over the years, this phrase has been translated different ways. But when you look at the context, when you look at the the meaning of the word and the nuances of the tenses, the grammar, it's obvious that what the apostle is saying is that when we love one another as believers... We're imitating the very love of Christ when He walked this earth. Does that make sense? When we love each other as Christ would love us, we're imitating Christ when He walked this earth. And here's the thing. It's not simply that we're doing something similar as Christ would have done. It's not simply that we're doing the same kinds of things as Christ did, but that we're doing them in the same power as Christ in the love of God that is in us. And we're doing it for the same purpose, the glory of God. Now, that's how we are the same in this world as Christ when he was in this world. When we love one another as Christ loved in real, tangible, sacrificial ways, even when somebody doesn't deserve it, we see the love of an invisible God being displayed before us, and we see the power of the cross. That, that's everything that's going on in these verses from 12 to 21. The question is, we have an invisible God. How do we know we have a right relationship with Him? Come to it now. We abide in Him. His love is perfected in us. And we see that outworking as we love one another in this world. Let me say it again. We see the love of an invisible God being displayed among us. It's the power of the cross. That gives us confidence that we really belong to God. It it is in part saying someone loves me and cares for me enough to, to do something in a very specific way but it is also looking at them and saying, 
I've got nothing in common with them. I don't know how they even knew I had a concern. They're not in my small group. I, I only see them briefly on Sunday morning, and yet they went out of their way and did something special. That is the love of God in them. And I see it, and it encourages me. It strengthens me. It gives me confidence. That's what gives us confidence that we belong to God. It gives us confidence for the day of judgment. This supernatural love of God didn't just save us. It is coursing through us as a family here and now, assuring us of our salvation, uh, assuring us of our eternal destiny. We love God because He first loved us. His generous love, His transformative love. He is the source of our love, which means that it is a love that is transforming and it is bringing real spiritual change as we act, uh, do acts of love one to another. Again, strengthening our assurance. And, and that's why John says, if you say you love God, who you haven't seen, and yet say you hate your brother or sister in Christ who is sitting right beside you, you're a liar. Those are pretty strong words. How can you say you love an invisible God and you can't love the visible transformation of God in the person beside you? Yeah, they may have their quirks and their challenges. You may not necessarily always get along, have a hard time serving together with, but they are a child in Christ. And they give the glory for, to God for that. When we love one another, that life-changing love of the invisible God is displayed for all to see the splendor of it. How can anyone say that they love God who they haven't seen and yet hate their brother and sister in Christ? It, it, it's not possible. The fullness of God's glory, of God's love, is visible right before you this morning. It's sitting beside you. That young man, that older woman, they have claimed Christ as their Lord and Savior. And, and as we love one another, the invisible God is demonstrated in all of his glory. And it encourages us. Now, this is such a profound thought that goes through all of the Bible that John says this has been a commandment. This is an axiom of a believer's life. Whoever loves God must also love your neighbor. You can't love the, the God who transforms people and not love the person who's just been transformed who sits beside you. And this is why love is the preeminent outward mark of those who are in God. Okay, so what does this all mean for us this morning? Where does the rubber meet the road, to say in another way? Well, first, do you struggle to have an assurance of your salvation? I'm sure that there are several here this morning. Maybe a teenager who's preparing for university. Maybe someone who's visiting the church and you've never been here before. Maybe you've been here for many years and something has happened in your life and you now don't have the assurance that you used to have. I want to encourage you that 
God wants you to be assured. You're wrestling with these things, and that's good. But God does not want you to be unassured of your salvation. I was thinking about this this morning again on the way in, in that news broadcast that I was listening to. Our culture is so full of stuff, and I can't imagine going to university these days. Yeah, and maybe that's where you are this morning as a young person. You've been raised in this church, and you know, you're going out, and you've made a profession of faith, you've been baptized, but everywhere around you, they talk about science, they talk about forensic evidence, they talk about things that you can touch. And in some way, it's not necessarily always antagonistic towards faith, but you look at the world around you and said, and say, do I really need to have an act of faith in God? Because life seems to sure go not too badly for most of the people around me. You know, is it really necessary? Well, it is. God abides in you if you have made a profession of faith. You are abiding in God if you have made a profession of faith. But you may need to restore that sense of connection with God that has been falling apart. I want you to know that God desires that you know with all surety that you are saved. And what are the evidences that we just looked at? Be sure, be, be strengthened in your understanding. You made a profession of faith. There should be a day that you can remember, hopefully, that you can go back to and say, I, by faith, receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that is an important part of having a testimony written out. If you never go back and look at it, you forget all the little details that led you up to a, to a place where you said, I am going to be a follower of Christ and I'm going to get baptized. There needs to be a, a going back in remembrance. There is an assurance for you to be strengthened in your faith knowing that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can pick up Scripture, and even the, the deepest, most profound things of God can be revealed to you. Be assured, be strengthened in your understanding that God has an unwavering love upon you. He loves you, warts and all. And it's nothing to do with your righteousness, with your goodness. It's because of Christ. And that's the surety that he loves you. And I also want to just say, be strengthened and be encouraged that you're part of a local body. And our task, and I think we do this better than a lot of churches I've been to, is to love one another. These are the ways that you can be assured, the internal evidences uh, of, of your right relationship with God. That is the outward forensic, is that loving one another. Even if you're making baby steps, you may not be the greatest giver of time and, and resources, but you're doing, when you hear of something, you're giving sacrificially. You're doing, be encouraged by that. That is the work of the Spirit in you. For those who find themselves in a storm of doubt this morning, Maybe, again, your marriage is falling apart, and you're thinking to yourself, how can Christians ha have a marriage that's on the brink of breaking up? How can he not love me? How can she not love me? 
How can we have financial difficulties? How can we have kids who rebel, who have serious troubles in their life? Doesn't God love us? Well, I want to encourage you, yes. You, don't, you shouldn't be focusing on that feeling of God, an assurance, a conviction, the same thing. You have made a confession of faith, your testimony. You have the objective truth of the Spirit in you. You have the conviction that God loves you. And finally, you are part of a body of believers where you can see the love of God being worked out. You may not feel like you're being loved all the time as you wish you were, but there is love. I don't know how many times I've heard, I'm not saying here, but how many times I've heard, well, I... I just don't, I'm not loved by the congregation. And you're thinking, well, what have you done to reciprocate that? Are you just sitting back waiting for someone to, to show you acts of love, to come over and clean your stove, <laughs> to clean your driveway? Or are you going out of your way to demonstrate your love and your commitment to others first? Well, it, it's a tricky situation. But way too often we sit back and think, I'm just not being loved by everyone. Uh, no, that's not true. We need to look at those evidences that demonstrate the conviction of faith, the indwelling spirit, and God loving us. And then again, being part of this family of God. Do you sometimes have doubts about what will happen to you when you stand before the kingdom of God? I, I want to just start by saying, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your fear should be real. <laughs> This is a holy God. Evil and sin cannot exist in his presence. He will judge sin. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're here this morning and you just have a nagging fear. Well, you know what? I have this understanding that Right now, I feel secure, but will God or will Jesus Christ be there, you know, when I die? Or is he going to be faithful? Is he going to be uh, true when the push comes to shove? You have a nagging doubt, whether it's present or future. You need to come back to an understanding of these principles again. Your confession of faith. The Spirit lives in you. God loves you and the people of God. You need to understand that God wants us to have peace. He desires that each and every one of us have a full assurance of our salvation and to live for Him boldly in this world. So if you're struggling, it's because of unbelief. Unbelief in some area of your life. God is sure with His promises. God's love is perfected in us, and so you need to call upon Him and build your knowledge and your understanding of your salvation. Maybe, again, you're a younger person. You've wrestled with your faith. You've been going to church. you made a profession. You've been baptized. But you still have this nagging fear. What will happen to me today if the Lord comes? Or you're an older person. You've been in the church a long time. You've served in, in no end of, of, of committees in different places. 
and you still have that nagging fear. You need to resolve that un, uh, unwanted or unresolved sin that impedes that relationship that you have with God. In the same way that God does not want any of us to doubt or to question our salvation, He doesn't want any of us to doubt or to question our eternal destiny. Now, do you struggle with the church? Oh, you say, well, I don't hate anybody. The apostle here says if you hate somebody, then you're a liar. Well, I don't hate somebody, but maybe you hold a grudge. Maybe you're not eager to mend fences. Maybe it's something as simple as you don't really wish that someone would do well at their work or at their school. There's bad vibes. I wrote this down early this morning, too. You know, there's some blessings of getting up at 4.30 in the morning when you, the alarm didn't go off. It was just bing. <laughs> what is the opposite of loving one another? It, it sounds like in the text, it, love and hate are pitted against each other, and they're a foil, but we're told very specifically that love here is actions, practical, real, meeting the needs of people. If that is love, what is the opposite of that? It's neglect. It's avoidance. It's saying, well, I'm not really part of this congregation or I don't really want to be a part of this congregation. You know, it's a half-hearted commitment. That's not a good thing. Love is the preeminent work or preeminent mark of those who live in God. It is the distinguishing characteristic that overrides everything else. So how can any of us say, I love God and I hate the person sitting across the pew from me? Or I begrudge them that they got a new car? Or I, I really hope that they don't do well in school? Even just neglecting the reality that they have a real need that I could meet and I don't want to do it. How can we say we love a God we can't see when we don't want to love the person sitting beside us? So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how was your love this morning? <laughs> what ways are you effective and, and find avenues of, of showing that love to other people in the congregation? How can you improve? But there's a fourth thing here I... It really moves me to this is so important for us to think about this morning. Are you part of a local church? And did you notice the importance of loving one another in every aspect of this and of the sanctifying role it has in the assurance of our salvation and the assurance of our eternal destiny? Our love for one another is, is an integral part of that, of that ongoing, growing assurance that we belong to God. And if we're not part of a local congregation, wow, that's a challenge. Now, I, I know there will be people who will say, well, you know, I, I don't need the church. I love God. They're, they're, the church is full of hypocrites. They're, they're full of people that are up and down, and, and they're, you know, they're just... I don't get along with them. Is that what the Word of God tells us? It's despite all that, isn't it? Now, we may say that this is a lie, and it, it's, it's a strong word to say, 
You, you can't say that you love God whom you haven't seen and not love the person who sits beside you. But even beyond that, the body of Christ is the place where the love of God is lived out. And in that love is the ongoing transformation. It continues with us as, as part of our sanctifying process. Uh, think of it this way. As a masseuse, you, you're rubbing the oil into the different body parts. Well, our love, our acts of love one for another is massaging in the grace of God. And so there is a great benefit. The church is the nursery room of our faith. The church is the ER of our faith. The church is the greenhouse of our faith. And if we're not a part of the church, your faith will not survive. Now, I know someone will say, well, what if? What if this is uh, uh, World War III coming and, and there's nukes dropped and I'm the only person? Well, what happens if, if I am on a desert island? Well, all of those ifs are unimportant. They're, <laughs> they're ifs. The fact remains that we were made for the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has a function to serve and to love, to build each other up. The question I guess you should ask yourself is, not only are you part of a local body, are you a member? And I, I see membership here. Why? Because if you're part of a congregation and you haven't committed yourself on what we see as a biblical covenant to come together and say, through thick or thin, we're going to walk with each other, we're committing ourselves to, to these things, then whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously, you are aloof from the rest of the body. And, and, and so I want to encourage you. There is here a, a real call for us to say, I'm here, this, this is my congregation, this is where I worship, I, I go to work around here, I'm committing myself to each and every one of you. It may take me the rest of my life to get to know you all, but this is where I want to know the love of God. This is where I want to serve, so I'm going to take out membership. And this, let me say as well, this is where I think small groups become important especially for us because, you know, we're dispersed throughout the GTA. <laughs> There's a couple families of us over in, in Oakville and Burlington, right, you know, across to the to eastern side. It's almost impossible for us to function as one local body down here. So what small groups do for us, it is a practical means for us to come together with others in our area and to find real and practical ways to love each other, to find that connectedness. And in that small group, we grow with each other. You serve each other, and that's what they're for. I'm not saying that, that there is a scripture and verse that says you have to have small groups as a church, but the reality is, in our day and context, in our modern world, we need small groups to maintain ourselves accountable to one another, to grow, and to be a part of the bigger body. So if you're not a member, I would encourage you to talk to us about membership. If you are not part of a small group, please talk to us. Uh, Nat, if you're here, over there. <laughs> talk to Nat. 
Our hearts will tell us all kinds of things. Our sin will, will pull us in directions. We'll, we'll say, does God really love me? Am I worthy of his love? How can I know it for all, with all surety that I am his forevermore? God's love is greater than our heart. God is the source of love. It is that love that is coursing through us as a body now. And, and we see it as we love one another. And it's important because it has a real sanctifying process in this. It's like salt. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father.